whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a 2023 Tony Award nominee in Best Sound Design of a Play category for Ain't No Mo, also a musician who's worked on an electronic who has worked as an electronic music designer on more than 30 Broadway productions. It's Taylor J. Williams, everybody. Thanks for having me here. This is so exciting. Oh, good. I'm glad you could be here. This is uh this is fun to talk to a current Tony nominee. We just got the news today, I think, that the ceremony is going forward. So that's very exciting. <laughs> we'll see what it looks like. It's gonna be a yes. um, you know, non-traditional uh, ceremony, but I'm very sure to see what it ends up being. Sure, that's fine. It could use a little non-traditionality, I think, every now and again, you know, shake yeah. shake things up. Um, but that's great. We'll definitely talk about the Tonys, and we'll talk about Ain't No Mo and all the wonderful Broadway shows you've worked on. But first, you're here to talk about Marguerite. From today, I am here. My life will never be the same. Who could say? Always here. A single kiss would light this flame. You're to blame. I come to save we my life. Can You've come to set me free. Again. My night and all. Another one, another day. There's nothing more from most of the people who brought you Les Mis <laughs> comes, comes Marguerite. How did Marguerite come into your life? Oh, man. I, I It was 20, 2008, and I think the website just popped into my email inbox or something. They did like this huge web push where you could listen to some of the songs online. Uh, and I said, you know, I've got I've to fly over to Europe to see that one. Um, which is wow. the dumbest thing in the world, but I, I like I couldn't miss this new thing from this team. Oh wow! So you went to London to see the show? Yeah, I flew over there. Um, you know, I, I had a friend uh, in college, and she was going to be studying in Switzerland uh, for the summer, and I just reached out on Facebook and said, "Anybody want to anybody want to go to London with me and see a show?" Um, wow. And she said, "Yeah," and so there it was. Oh my gosh. Well, that okay. Uh, so big, big fan of the of the Les Mis crew you were and are. Yeah, I, I, I think it's one of those things. It's one of those shows that's like you know, um, if you're my age, I was I was born in the '80s, and you know, you sort of grow up with that being one of those major musicals that came over from Europe that was defining musicals uh, in the late '80s and early '90s. And um, sure. yeah, so when the team was back together again, and I was like, like I gotta catch this one, you know. <laughs> so what did you what did you think going to see it on on the West End? You know, I, I oftentimes people people ovate at the end of a show because they've already paid a lot for the ticket, so they want to remind themselves they had a good time. I think. Sure. Um, I don't know that I could that I could properly assess whether or not this was a good show based on the fact <laughs> that I had committed to traveling all the way over to London to, say. to see it. But I I do know that it's held such a sweet spot. Um, not only because of those memories, but just the music, what it is. Um, I think overall, I enjoyed it. I had a great time, but I will say digging into it now to like revisit it with you, I, I'm i like, oh, I, I guess I sort of get why they rewrote that. I get why they changed that in later versions. 
<laughs> well, so you went over there. You had you not heard any of the music, or had you with your were there samples online? Had the cast album come out when you went over there? What was the what was your experience? Yeah, no, that? no cast album, but they had released uh, the face I see, and um, I think jazz time, and maybe a bit of China Doll. So like those were the three that they were leading with hard, um, mm -hmm. which makes sense because they're like they typify Michelle Legrand's writing, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and and so it was they put those out there to let you know what you were going to get. And I, I was in. <laughs> I think it's probably a good idea, actually, early doors here to uh, let the folks know, because this is not one of your your we say from the creators of Les Mis and Miss Saigon, but this is probably their. I would say their least well-known show of the, of the post Les Mis era. I mean, you have Martin Gare, obviously, which which some people know or don't know. But this one, this one's kind of in the more. I think because it didn't come to New York, you know, in the in, it, it didn't make that that route. That it, it's sort of in the more fandom base. So, could you do you think summarize the plot of of Marguerite, even yeah. in a cursory way for the for the audience? Super easily, it's Moulin Rouge. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's true. It's, it's, yes, <laughs> based on the same source material, um, mm -hmm. Le Demo Camellias, or the, or the Lady of the, you know, Camellias, or just Camille sometimes in English, uh, by Alexandre Dumas Fils, the son of the Three Musketeers writer, um, and it's semi-autobiographical about this, you know, this crush he had on a courtesan who yes. was sort of a kept woman by Franz Liszt. So, like you know ripped from the headlines european drama like this is a this is a soap opera that you can't make up and he just committed it to this you know cd novella that is inspired la traviata and you know that to pretty woman and and so on and so forth so yeah i mean i could scene by scene beat by beat compare it to moments in moulin rouge and you would say mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah we no spoiler alert she dies and they tell you at the very beginning oh right Satine or marguerite sits in her room and uh you know contemplates oh my god i just met this guy maybe maybe i'm not just a you know just a sex worker or just a courtesan um maybe there's more to life you know and it's just beat by beat but it's so beautiful um because mm -hmm. it's um you know what what this team does is is they take um these big grand pieces of art and then they set them somewhere fun so like miss saigon uh madama butterfly but you're going to set it in vietnam and sort of have a chance to poke at french occupation of indochina and poke at americans and and you know our involvement in the war christ i'm an american how could i help but do good um <laughs> and uh i mean lemis takes place where lemis takes place but other than that they like they like to set things in interesting places and so mm -hmm. this one going to occupied paris in world war ii is like a really cool place to put this story i felt reviewers well, really... might have disagreed <laughs> Well, I think it's a good idea. I mean, you say it's based on this very famous novella, which then inspired all kinds of stuff, including just the the movie, you know, and movie. I say movie. There's like 15 movies called Camille and stage yeah. production. It was one of the most overperformed plays in American theater history, you know, in, yeah. in the in the early in the late 19th century. And I think if you're going to do it, you you need to do something to it. And what I like about the setting in like you say occupied paris is it gives the story stakes it gives it life and death stakes you know the, the stakes are like your comparison to to moulin rouge is of course 
perfect. It is it is Moulin Rouge. But it really like Moulin Rouge, the stakes are personal. The stakes are, you know, the concept of love. And that's big, but right. it's not like it's not life or death in that same way. And in this version, people are, you know, in a lot of trouble all the time. And it is not only about her realizing she has self-worth, but also her realization that there are other people in the world who are suffering and she has a responsibility to take care of that, you know? So it gives it an extra, an extra level of depth that the, this, the, the source material doesn't, doesn't have, not that the source material is lacking for it, but it, if you're going to adapt this story for the umpteenth time, like there better be a, a reason to do it and, and you, you know, give it, give it an extra shake. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's it's such a and of course it's very you know they're French it's French you know that let's let's get let's get let's get to it you know let's figure out yeah. figure out what's going on with it uh, yeah I was so I, I had heard a couple of songs from this before I listened to it to to talk to you I I knew uh, let the world turn I think I had heard and um, I am here was one that's uh, I'd heard people perform um, but I never heard the whole thing all the way through. And I was glad to hear you say that maybe it's not what you remembered it being because so I, I listened to these shows three times before I talked to my guests. That's my role. And I got to say, Taylor, the third time through was a tough one for me. It was a tough skate. I'm sorry. Um, send me your dress. I owe you a bubble. <laughs> it's sort of it, it's. I, I sort of eventually thought it might just be the emotional pitch that this thing lives at. Cause this is, you know, this is prime mid nineties, Frank Wildhorn and Bubble and Schomburg. Like, yeah. like all the characters are constantly dialed to 11. And there's a point where you're just like, man, could somebody come on and tell a joke at some point? Cause I could really use some relief here. <laughs> yeah. But I will say, I think had they done that, it would have felt very untrue. Yeah, I mean, like you mm. said, it's it's that pitch at which it lives and it's the stake. Um, because I remember seeing Woman in White like during its last preview at the Marquee on Broadway, and mm. Michael Ball would have these like comic relief numbers with the the mouse or gerbil climbing up his arms. And I remember it like I'm excited I'm seeing Michael Ball, but like this scene really doesn't need to be in the show for me. Um, mm. And so I think that anything that would have done that here would have, in some way, taken away from like believing mm -hmm. the stakes are so high um mm -hmm. but i i get it listening to the album now how you sort of crave like you just sort of want to hit the pause button like switch to switch to a mm -hmm. podcast and then come back and uh come back and pick up back to a little later yeah it's absolutely what i did i was just like yeah, yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna hop in yeah, it is funny that the because i think you're right you don't want to insert comic relief it uh, un unearned comic relief and they're more their most successful shows being les mis and miss saigon have built in comic relief you know the Thenardier is obviously the comic relief of Les Mis but they are also deeply cynical interesting characters in that tapestry so it never it doesn't break what's going on in general and in Miss Saigon the engineer being you know over the top is very entertaining in a different way than the other characters are so there's this variety from the earnestness and so I don't know if if uh, if there's a place for that in here Exactly. Also, it's not fair entirely, obviously, as I say a lot on this podcast, to judge the show purely on the cast album. There are book scenes. There's stuff going, you know, there's a there's there is a break uh, in that sense. But 
I really did feel like a few <laughs> late in act two, man. because obviously it's also a, it's a, it's a melodrama. Like when things go, it's a tragedy. When things go wrong, they go wrong very, very hard. So, you know, yeah. that's its own kind I of mean, exhausting. A, <laughs> they wrote in the news clip scene where like, they're talking about how the Vichy government today announced that it will introduce new regulations prohibiting Jews from working freely in any capacity without authority. Jews from the age of six will also be obliged to wear, at all times, a distinctive sign of their race. These rules go well beyond the demands of the German invaders. So you're sitting there listening to that and you're like, oh my gosh, you need to identify the six-year-olds? Like, yes! Yeah, it's, it's some dark stuff. Yo, yeah, incredibly dark stuff. And, you know, like, that's if you're going to deal with that time, you've got to deal with, with all of it. Uh, so... I was glad to see they weren't shirking from it, but yeah, you're right. There's some stuff on that on the, in the the details in there, which are are great, are just absolutely devastating the whole the whole time. And they parallel, I believe, Marguerite's uh, coming in, like I say, her coming into the realization that there is, you know, some stuff in the world that she needs to pay attention to because it opens with this great, you know, song invoking the phrase where some one character literally says, you know, war, what war, you know, it's, so it's, you're, you're sort of starting, starting all the way down here. You need to build up to a really, a really high pitch. Um, so you did, you went to see this in college or just out of college, you said. So yeah, college for me was like, I just sort of passed through. Like it was like, <laughs> I came in, I needed to know that I could do it. And I met people who wanted, like, I, I went to American University um, mm. and I was there for about a year, the school was paying me to play piano and I was paying them to study. And I was like, I could money in money out. I, I sort of sure. weighed, you know, the scale. And I said, you know, I'm going to work as a, as a music director. So this was, I think just after I left, um, mm. I, I was able to, I was able to hop over and, and yeah, just check it out. Oh, okay. So you had the freedom of, of, of movement uh, for that. Yeah. So when, you, but you came to, to AU, I think from the West coast, is that Correct. Is that where you're from? Yeah, I'm from San Diego, uh, North County, San Diego, originally. That's, you know. But you you came to uh, as a musician and specifically to study theater. Is that is that correct? I wish I. Oh, I dropped, OK. I, I've been a bad student my whole life. So <laughs> I, I used to I used to skip classes in high school. And there was a friend of mine that lived right across the school. And I would go over and use all their printer paper and ink printing out like the libretto to Les Mis um, or, you know, printing something in like the old typewriter font from rent like once you could find those things online so yeah. i was just like obsessed with music theater more than i was with my classes um mm -hmm. and so yeah I, I dropped out of school and started seeing rent up and down the west coast and then went over to london to see that uh because i had to see what fortunately it wasn't rent remixed this is uh 2003 and i had uh -huh. to see what rent looked like on the west well you know on the west end um so by the time i came uh, to the East Coast, I was just sort of floating around. You know, the the Rent Collins mm. tour closed in D.C. in May of 2003. I met somebody there who is still my wife 20 years later. Um, and so, like, music theater gave me all these opportunities for life to happen. And mm. school was just sort of this thing that I was going back and filling in. Um, but I had I'd been in the, you know, the Delmarva, the, the DMV area for, uh, you know, for a few years before you. Oh, okay. So you you came you came east and then then found your way. Yeah. Then found your way there. Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's a really wow. That's an interesting kind of older journey that like people don't often do anymore. That in that kind of like the journeyman 
you know working like you say in the music thing in, in the music scene uh especially not in theater you don't you don't see that too often you met a lot of people who have your story or is it a lot more conservatory based and then you know here they are kind of stuff it's it's a mix not not a lot that have i, w- I would say the exact journey but i think because i i tend to be drawn to people who have more similar stories mm. um I guess um, just the circles I run, and I'm I'm fortunate to meet people who have had non-traditional paths to where they are. Sure. Well, and it's interesting. I think that I, I was expecting when uh, when I first started to to learn about you as a as a Tony nominated sound designer that sound design would be your primary focus. But it seems that being a musician is your primary focus. And yeah, is that accurate? And then you you obviously connect in in the modern sphere being a musician if you're not plugged into software and the electronics obviously you're you're only living half a half an experience especially if you're a music director you would have to do all those things all at once um so i'll i guess the i have a lot of questions about that but the first i'll start with the um uh how did you how did that transition go from from just you know music directing i'm going to play piano and things into the software was that something that was always sort of developing simultaneously or did you suddenly one day be like, gosh, I really just want to play around with these MIDI files for a little while and see what that's all about. Yeah. I, um, I started in pageantry as a child, like before I could remember my mom, you know, said, Oh, you've got chubby cheeks and, and um, you know, um, an outgoing personality or something. I don't think I had an outgoing personality, but she thought I did enough to put mm. me in pageantry. And sure. so I guess the bug, the bug bit me before I knew it bit me. Um, so I was performing on stage in community theater productions or high school productions. Um, like as a child, I remember playing Snoopy at like four in this high school production of your good man, Charlie Brown. Um, although it couldn't have been, cause that's a, that's a pretty sizable role. It was, it was probably like, a um, you know, a Charlie Brown Christmas or something, but, sure. uh, so being in the theaters always felt like my safe space. I could always go lie, you know back in, in unused flats or in a, in a rat's nest of cables or whatever. And that feels like home to me. Uh, so there was always this onstage performance slash music thing going on in my life. And around the time I was whew, somewhere between 11 and 14, um, the Patio Playhouse Theater in Escondido, California needed some music tracks for a show. And this, this woman, this director there gave me a copy of Cakewalk, which is a, a digital audio workstation, an old, mm-hmm. old version on like yes. a 3.5 floppy disk. I remember Cakewalk. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so she said, have fun. You've got the skills. Go to. And I didn't get everything done by the deadline, but that sort of that sort of opened my eyes to the technology side of music. Um, and so, you know, when I auditioned for American University, I remember opening up the songs that I wanted to do saying, you know what, let's put these in a different key. Let's transpose these. Let's let's open up Sibelius and make it look right. Or let's do some tracks for whatever reason and, and you know, make it sound good. And so I've always been mixing onstage performance, playing instruments and and the technology for, for as long as I can recall. Oh, that's great. I mean, that that's sort of, I think, the ideal modern way to do it. I, I think that it, 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 there's, there's some musicians i know who resist the sort of what is the oncoming or even it's here it's not even oncoming uh technological advances and and advantages that can come come with that and i think that is keyboard your primary instrument yeah 
Okay, so that that also goes very hand in hand. I think the keyboard be with 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 the software is they they play together very well. So, how did you go from? How did it work to go from you know music directing? You did. I mean, I would say in, your, in the intro, you did thirty shows on, on Broadway shows like Moulin Rouge, Beetlejuice, Be More Chill, Hamilton. Maybe you've heard of that. You know, King Kong, all these different shows. And then, how do you end up as a sound designer on on Eight No Mo? Yeah, Jonathan Deans, Jonathan Deans, Jonathan Deans. He is the mm. co-sound designer. And he is, I mean, legend. He has designed, you know, physical gear that's used and chips that are used still today in soundboards. Um, but he used to be part of a company called Autograph, a specialty sound shop in the UK, which still exists. And so he was the one out there setting up uh, the Les Mises, uh, you know, on the mm. original tours. He was the one finding who was going to be the audio engineer for that. Uh, he's always had a good eye for seeing other talent and always had a generosity for, you know, um, sharing the stage as it were. So I first met Jonathan shortly after I moved to New York doing Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. It was a national tour and it was with Jeff Martyr. He was the programmer and music supervisor. and He brought me on as an extra set of hands. And we got to spend a freezing cold winter in Peoria, Illinois, which I highly don't recommend, <laughs> uh, um, you know. Uh, it's like John Deere tractors and interesting factoids about Liberace. And that's Peoria in my experience. Um, and we had a great time. Uh, but, I, you know, he was just one of those guys that like, you could be new, you could be old. He's going to sit down and have a conversation with you and be very open-minded. Um, and so years later, when he was doing Waitress with Sarah Bareilles, um, he brought me in. Uh, I didn't program that show, but they needed somebody who could, um, can't quite think of the word, but sort of streamline all the programming uh, because mm, mm-hmm. Jamie Edwards, who did the keyboard programming, you know, he would go out on tour with Amy Mann and Meg Tui did the guitar programming. But if she wasn't there, it needed some looking after. So Jonathan said, you do this. Will you come in and do this? Um, and, you know, we've, we've had the fortune of getting to work together throughout the years, sort of in that capacity, me as programmer, him as sound designer. And so he knew that I was able to build sounds that that served a show, that served a piece. Um, and he knew that he could do everything as far as the technical sound design. Um, so with Ain't No Mo, he, he brought me in, which is really cool. He um, he saw the script and and he knew that it was a show about black people, about about black people in America. And he called me up to say, Hey, do you know anybody who might be interested in this? Knowing that he was asking me, but like, I just was like, <laughs> yeah, Oh yeah. You must want something else. You know, like here's, here's three names of people, you know? And he said, well, I don't, I don't know. How about you do it? Um, and what was really cool is I never felt that he made me a token. Like mm-hmm. I was not just the black person to cover for him. He never asked me to stand behind him so that he could decide the terms of my agreement. He never took my black ideas, but discarded my black body. He just, pulled up a seat at the table. He like, he put a leaf in the table, made it a little bigger and said, and we are equal partners on everything. So if there was something that I did privately, I brought it back to him and we worked on it together. If there was something he had done separately, he gave me, you know, final say over, does this go in the show or not? It was like a Lennon McCartney thing. Um, Mm. And so it was a really special thing. Um, And the fact that it's led to this Tony nomination is like, it's his fourth Tony nomination. It's my first, but it's like this unbelievable gift that he's given me. Um, 
not not to mention being able to be involved with this show that is now like it means so much to me you know uh a worse sure. side so that's that's the journey if, if you don't know because this is mainly a musicals podcast listening to fans of musicals but anmo written by and and starring uh jordan e cooper obviously up for best play and and uh, about five other tonys i believe uh yeah is the story it, it's sort of a it it might be reductive to call it kind of a sketch show, but it is a lot of vignettes about a a mythological uh, future in which the United States government offers every African-American a ticket, one way ticket to Africa if they want to take it. And so I imagine like how doing sound design for a play like that must be. Obviously, there's there's the, you know, you're in a, you're in a real environment. There's there's certain sounds that have to exist in it. But. I imagine, unlike in a musical where you're, you know, you're blending, you you have the orchestra to contend with and the singers, and then also ambiance. Like there's a lot of to to play around with, but it is a very, it's it, everyone knows about the sonic design of a musical. It makes perfect sense to everybody involved. In a play, I think that it's a little more invisible and has to sort of be like, well, if we really notice the sound design, this might be a problem. So how did you sort of balance, you know, that? as a sound designer uh, working on, on something like this, like on, on a play that has to have the sound kind of more, you know, in the mix instead of front and center. Yeah. We were very lucky that Stevie Walker Webb, the show's director mm -hmm. um, had developed this with Jordan Cooper. Um, and so they know the show so intimately that when we would talk about sound cues, there would be like, no, we weren't making music. We weren't doing sound. Stevie would sit there and say, okay, we've got to grab Miss Bag, this character that's a repository for all the all the cultural contributions of, of Black people to America. And he would grab a desk and just shake it and count, you know, he would breathe and count, okay, that one needs to be three seconds. And then he would, he would give the next line and shake it again. And he just knew in his heart of hearts, like exactly what a full breath felt like for the show, like this living thing. And he was like, he was he was Odame. He was like tapped into it and, you know, um, a perfect medium for the show. So. Um, so that was part of it, like just the leadership and the guidance. The other part of it is that we were given permission for things not to be invisible. Mm. You know, the system was built for things to be invisible. Um, so the the opening vignette, we're in a church, in a funeral. Uh, for brother right to complain, you know, with Obama becoming president, uh, black people have lost their right to complain. But with that, there ain't going to be no mo stopping for us. There ain't going to be no mo. All these, all these horrors that we've faced uh, throughout our history here in America. Um, and I remember Stevie said, you know what, this sounds great, but it, maybe it sounds too great. Like I want it to feel like my church. I want it to feel like we don't have, you know, three-time Tony nominee at the time, Jonathan Dean's working on it. We want it to feel like. Mm -hmm. It's somebody who just, you know, felt felt the spirit of the Lord and, and had a calling to come down here and, and mix the sound. So we got to crank up the distortion and we got mm -hmm. to I mean, Marshawn Davis was just amazing. That scene as, as a as a preacher, as a black preacher. And he has that musicality to to his performance and to, to his sermon. Uh, and yeah, Crystal Lucas Perry was playing our organ um, and and just being a church lady. And she's also Tony nominated for her amazing performance in the show. Um, and so, yeah, we got, we got to do things that made us a little less invisible. 
Mm. And, and that helped a lot. And then finally, like, because, um, because it is vignettes, the music, uh, got to be in conversation with the vignettes. So as we were changing from location to location, sometimes it wasn't just, uh, just sound effects or just general tone. Let's do on a, you know, a full on mashup of, of Megan the Stallion and, and Malcolm X. Let's do, you know, uh, Donna Summer up against uh, Lizzo, you know? And so there were these fun moments for the audience to sort of catch their breath, um, to catch their breath because there's some hard stuff that the show deals with and then be slammed right back into it. Um, that kept people on the edge of their seats. Well, that's wonderful. It's good to have, I mean, it's, it's great to have a director who, who has a concept of what sound design is. I have several friends who are sound designers who are, have great frustration <laughs> over simple. I mean, because it is that, you know, that, that terrible thing. Sound, sound is that weird thing. It's weird in movies too, where, like people don't know when it's good, but they know when it's bad. And you're sort of, you know, like you're almost like a plumber. If you know, it's, it's only when you mess up that everything gets full of shit. So you have to really kind of, <laughs> you have to, you, you have to skate that line certain times. But if you have a director who is very aware of the sound and is very like, no, this is like, it knows exactly how it should feel and, and gives you the freedom to kind of ride. I think that's excellent. So you you brought up something a little earlier when you were talking about musicals that I wanted to drill down into because I think a lot of people may not know about this job even uh, or that it's a job. But could you explain to the the musical fans listening, uh, in other words, everybody, um, what is a programmer and what does that job entail? What is a programmer? Um, yeah, I didn't know it was a real job either. I got to be honest. Until, <laughs> until I you got it. it. Until I got it. And I was like, oh, cool. Um, so yeah, every, every Broadway show nowadays, nearly every Broadway show has some electronic instrument element. And this doesn't have to be a show that sounds like six and like, sounds like modern music. Um, Marguerite, even since everybody's heard it three times, at least I'm sure, um, (laughs) actually has two keyboards, you know, one of which is primarily harp, um, and the other, which is doing some string and brass things. Um, but we use electronic instruments to to supplement uh, live players, to make what isn't possible possible, and all this sort of stuff. And somebody has to come in and sometimes design those sounds or sometimes get those sounds from the orchestrator and plug them in, take notes from the players to make sure that it's playable and feels good to them, um, and work with the sound teams just to make sure that it sounds good in front of house. So it's, it, it's, it's one of those things that's still growing and we're still discovering what it can be. Uh, for a while it was only keyboards and then, well, I guess we could do drum pads also. Oh, we could do guitars. Uh, there's a guy in Chicago right now working on violin programming for electric violins and it sounds really good. I don't know what it's going to lead to, but it sounds really good right now. Um, and then Ableton is this thing that everybody loves now, uh, to do playback tracks, but also to like sneak in weird effects or control lighting to make sure that it stays synced with the music in a way that we just... That was a little risky uh, before, and now we could we could achieve it with like absolute precision. Yeah, I mean, I think that anyone who has heard Hamilton will know like that there is not all those sounds that come across your cast recording are played by a you know a, a traditional acoustic instrument. Obviously, uh, that there is a tremendous yeah. amount of of sound and and sound programming in that show specifically, and. I think it would make sense to people in a show like that, that there would be a job like a programmer. But that is, I mean, it's not only that I think people would be interested that not only is it on almost every musical, I would imagine, but that it's a job that has to be continuous, that someone has to be there 
always checking up on things, making sure everybody's, you know, running every night and every performance is, is, is functioning. Yeah. It's, it's sort of somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, our players take great responsibility and pride in making sure that they know how their, their system works and making sure that it sounds good. Um, and members of the sound team, there are audio members that are backstage and right after they're done getting mics on the cast members, they might go down and turn everything on and make sure that it's connected. Um, so I sort of, I definitely have to keep one ear out, uh, because with computers, it's not a matter of if they go bad, but when they go bad, uh, but there are days that I don't hear from a show or weeks that I don't hear from a show until, you know, somebody comes in who had a little mistake or booted something up Mm -hmm. the wrong way, you know? Uh, uh, yeah. So, so by and large, I don't have to be at the theater every day. Thank goodness. Uh, (laughs) but I definitely keep my phone on. I was gonna say you got to be available though, so that's that's a whole different yeah. uh, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Can you, are you doing multiple shows at the same time as a program? Um, I have multiple shows running. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's sort of the only way to you know to make a full meal. Um, sure. So right now, Beetlejuice has a U.S. tour out. Moulin Rouge is playing in Germany, about to open in Japan, London. It has a tour out, and it's on Broadway. Um, and I about to do i think we're taking beetlejuice onto a cruise ship um Ooh. for for norwegian cruise lines it's going to be on the viva so um we'll set it up there uh but yeah it's hard to like to start multiple shows at once you have to have a big mm. team in order to make that happen uh and i've been parts of other people's teams and i've i've got great people that work with me to to make that possible uh but yeah right now we just have shows running and we're not too worried about putting up something new which is great yeah, I would imagine though being on call for multiple shows can be kind of stressful. Have you ever had a a multi show catastrophe <laughs> occur in the same, uh, in the same day? Yeah, yeah, I'm not at liberty to discuss. Yeah, no, sure, it's, that's uh, fine. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it has happened. Fortunately, we've got you know there are wonderful apps that allow us to remote into a computer, and mm-hmm. um, people tend to think of keyboards as keyboards, but nowadays they're plugged into computers that are making the sounds because it's just so much more powerful. Um, so I could be anywhere in the world and on my phone log into Moulin Rouge on Broadway and say, "Oh, I see somebody just click this button accidentally and undo it, and they're off to the races." Jeez, mm, that <laughs> that is so interesting to fathom, though. I mean, because the you know. these these shows are such sophisticated you know swiss watches of of engineering and not just you know not just the turntables and not just the quick changes and not just the lights but like there's there's a lot to it and i really think that like going back to like you were mentioning the 80s when i saw les mis for the first time and the idea basically of the rotating stage blew my mind. But then also I remember going to see that show and looking up at the ceiling and just the volume of lights that were hanging from that ceiling and later sort of thinking, God, how hot that must've been up there. And now, you know, we took my son to see Hamilton not too long ago. And, you know, there's a lot of lights, but not as many as you would expect in that sort of circumstance. <laughs> and it's all, you know, there's it's LEDs, it's programmed, like it's not burning hot, it, but it, it's all programmed into this this precise little little mechanism. And the things you can do are wonderful uh, with it. But do you ever feel like, do you ever have a longing for the kind of analog system? Or is that is that sort of outside of your experience and it's, and it's fine, you know, the way it is? Like I said, I grew up, I grew up in the theater. So like there is a romanticization that I can have. I I could definitely remember, you know, the older days and, you know, smelly 
barely functioning follow spots and, and all that stuff, sure. you know, gels, gels that were melting through, oh, just, man. you know, probably had been used one time too many and loud scrollers right. and, you know, um, gobos yeah, just getting no. distorted out of all recognition. <laughs> right. Um, uh, that's, that's part of the fun of it. But no, I think the way that we're moving forward um, is is really exciting. I don't think that it's one of those things where we're progressing just for progress sake. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually finding new ways to communicate something, uh, which is what keeps the audience engaged and which is what keeps the art form alive, I think. You know, if, if we wanted to just do Shakespeare as it was presented, um, right. you know, if we literally wanted limelights, uh, you know, we could... We could do that, and it, you know, it might be great as a as a historic piece, um, but I, I think it's great that we could have that somewhere happening and have something new, um, like Howell Blinkley's work on on Hamilton, which is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say I think the cast still feels quite warm. I mean, they might not be wearing Jean oh, sure. bridge coat, uh, but that is one of the workingest casts in yes. the world. I mean, it is it is to quote the show nonstop, and the fact that they move around and fly like they do in those lights i I promise Mm -hmm. you they're still getting warm (laughs) oh sure but you can't imagine them doing that under the actual like you know the lights we had when we were kids like you just can't in 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 the fabrics and i mean like i'm sure those costumes aren't aren't cool and breezy but you imagine the sort of like wool that they would have been wearing (laughs) <laughs> at a time right. we were like it would not have looked like that at all they would have or it would have been much much shorter it wouldn't have been right. able to to migrate it on i mean i remember somebody telling me that the way Le mis progresses the way it does into revolution just so everybody can take off their jackets and like just be for a second just breathe uh yeah. for a moment yeah it's so i mean i think that if you didn't grow up with the that's a harp on the heat of the lights but i, I you just re- reminded me when i used to work stage crew in college for an opera company and we set this thing up before the run of a show of a, a dedicated light that was shining on a disco ball and it would, the disco ball was stationary and it would just turn on and this light effect would happen, you know, up against the psych and it would dim in and out. And when we were striking the show, nobody had been checking on this thing for the whole run. We went to take on the show. It had melted into like this, like, you know, convex hole where the light had been striking it and we were just like and i remember the td being like all right well we're not getting the deposit back on that that's uh that's sunk (laughs) but it was a real like it was kind of a scary moment though also of us being oh right that's a light it's hot it's burning this thing night after night after night after night and we probably should have rotated that like like a tiny bit every single night you live and you learn You, you are in a very interesting position i think as a professional in 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 theater at the moment sort of like being seeing you seem like you have kind of a broad picture uh view of things and for for people who want to get involved in doing what you're doing maybe it's the musicians or programmers or anything like that you know people who are into electronic music things like that what what do you recommend as the path for that because it's, it's sort of a it's a tricky little world to break into obviously. And you can go the pit route and work with like a music director or something like that. But what do you, what do you like, what kind of people do you recommend hanging out with? Is it orchestrators? Is it composers? Like who should you attach yourself to? Attach yourself to somebody curious, be somebody curious, you know, like I, like I was saying, I would, I would print out Les Mis uh, because I was excited about Les Mis, you know, who knew that it would ever serve me on a show, but then, you know, you get to, you get to program it one day um, as a player when I did Les Mis and 
and I had an intimate knowledge of what it should be because my curiosity, I just sort of carried that with me. I get messages from people all the time saying, oh, I'm thinking about getting into programming. I'm finishing up at, at university. How do I do it? And like, I really couldn't tell you there are few enough of us that do it. And the community uh, tends to tends to go with known entities, right? Every now and then there's some new kid that comes up and they've got some cool trick in their back pocket. But the job is like, you could know some piece of software or have developed some cool sound. But if you can't show up and sort of communicate with your collaborators or stay cool under pressure or make sure you get the GMs, the the price, you know, general managers, the price breakdowns that they need for buying gear when they need it, uh, you're just not the right person for the job. And so it's one of those multidisciplinary things. And so just, I, I would recommend that anybody stay curious and stay flexible. Um, and there will be somebody who sees that in you and says, yeah, I need you on my team. Because as I said, we have to do multiple shows to make a full meal. And, and once you've got that experience and once you've done it a bit, you've done the on-call thing, um, you'll find an opportunity to have your own show. And I think that's, that's sort of the path that I think is the, the safest to recommend is it something that you find in, in your field a lot more musicians have gone into it or is it more people who come up sort of doing the sound design, maybe maybe recording, producing side of, of the uh, the equation? I think it's mostly musicians that I know mm. that have done it. Um, Jeff Martyr, who did Aladdin and Newsies and other shows, amazing jazz pianist. But he like toured Asia as a gospel pianist right out of university um and so like you wouldn't expect that that he is then sure. one of the best programmers on broadway um billy stein and hero Ida, like hero used to work in like wwe sound sound design that went along with like wrestling um when when he and billy started doing spider-man turn off the dark um and billy you know he composes he's he's got stuff happening for films and tv shows so yeah, having a, having a command of music, I think, is the most helpful, um, because you could have a cool sound, but if you sit down to a keyboard or a drum pad and try to play it, it just sounds like, you know, everything's chopping over each other. It doesn't it doesn't serve the piece anymore. And I'm not saying no sound designers have that sense too. Actually, you know what? The best sound designers I know are also musicians. John Shivers, who won for Kinky Boots, he'll play he'll play stuff on the ukulele when we're just sitting around uh you know working on lion king or something he'll pick up an instrument and play uh pete hylensky motown and just one from moulin rouge uh he's an amazing drummer like out of this world drummer uh so i think there's like always this this crossfit that's happening uh for the people that i've seen sort of reach the highest peaks of of what we do i don't know that i ever th i i knew that when i was young i wanted to be a pilot or an actor and then i was like screw it i'm gonna be an actor because then i could play a pilot <laughs> Right. Like, I, I, it, you know, I love that the, logic. That's great. The idea of being able to do anything and doing something different on a different day um, has always been exciting to me. And even now, like you've caught me in like this peripatetic phase of my life where I'm sitting in Sydney, Australia, um, just that so I could circumnavigate the world. I'm, I'm here for literally a week and then I'll be back in New York. Um, so it's the dumbest thing in the world. But what that does is by going from place to place, I'm always a little uncomfortable. I don't know exactly where I am. I don't know exactly how the currency works. Sometimes I'm in a place where I don't know the language. And and that discomfort is where I feel most comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, it's it's like it's like those people who thrive on stage, right? They know how to channel that energy into a good performance. I think I know how to channel. I don't know. I don't know what language is about to come out of my mouth or, or what I'm about to hear, but I'm going to find a way to communicate with you um, as as a you know. It really excites me. So, I think it's the same thing with my CV in a way, um, where if somebody says, "Hey, can you do this?" I either say, "Yeah, I know everything about that. This is an easy way to make a buck." Um, or I really like this team. I don't know exactly what I'm doing, but I'm sure I could trust them. Or I have no idea what this is. So a- absolutely, I'll do it. You know, because um, mm-hmm. I'm going to learn something here. Um, I think it's. I think for me, it's more about like mindset for anybody. I mean, your episode about uh, what was it about parade? You know, you were talking about mm-hmm. triple threats and how everybody's starting to look like Jeremy Jordan and sort of this right. like homogenization of of actors. Um, because there's certain expectations and you're absolutely right that there are expectations of musicians, particularly keyboardists, music directors, people on that track of rehearsal pianist to, to composer or <laughs> whatever it looks like. Um, and I do see some commonalities in mentality amongst those people. And those that have the most longevity in a career are the ones who have figured out how to, you know, either either it's meditation or still finding joy in playing the piano. They still, you know, before a show, they're warming up on some Bach piece. They're staying curious. They're staying engaged and interested. Um, so all those other things are sort of at service to their joy for the work, mm-hmm. as opposed to, oh, man, I have to be a multi hyphenate and do this and this and this. No, I just have to show up and love it and everything else I'll be able to do. I wasn't going to ask you about this, but we've gotten there. This is on my long list of questions, but I ask you a big question. Okay. How do you feel about our what I what I would view as a a current kind of obsession, especially in recorded music, but also in performance, with pitch and with perfection in that sense? I'm not talking about perfect pitch as a concept, obviously, but I think you know what I mean based on the smile on your face. That the, the <laughs> sort of repeating performance having to be exactly the same and exactly you know on pitch and on rhythm and exactly in the sort of same way is is something that sort of struggles against the live aspect of of what we do and the the desire for that to not the desire but the sort of the natural course for that to be messy and the messy is part of what a lot of people myself included enjoy about it but there seems to be this real obsession right now with it's got to be exactly on pitch it's got to be right exactly perfectly timed and in that exact little moment and i i just don't know what to, you know as an outsider that's my opinion on it. But like, what do you, what do you have any thoughts on that that broad subject? Yeah, uh, it is broad. I I think it's one of those things where there are as many right answers as there are people. Mm -hmm. Um, It is just such an opinion heavy thing. I know that you talked about this in the, in the sunset Boulevard episode. I think there's a couple of things at play. One is vocal health. Mm -hmm. If doing it in a replicable way means that you have worked with your vocal coach to make sure that it's safe for you, Mm -hmm. then by all means, let it be the same night after night. That's um, a good point, yeah. You know, actors can make discoveries while still holding their pitches. Like you watch certain performers, they'll put their hands right over their gut when they're in the middle of an emotional thing. You know, mm-hmm. um, that that clip of the the young kid playing Oliver recently, like when he's doing Where Is Love and he like, you see that. And that's that's usually a, a vocal coach thing, right? Like mm-hmm. it's remember to, remember to hold your diaphragm, remember to all this yeah. stuff. And Support, if you can yeah. act it. That's great, but it's just a it's a physical reminder of what you're doing. Um, and so I think I think there is that it needs to be repeatable uh, without hurting yourself. Um, other than that, 
I, I vote, I grew up with a wide threshold for pitch. You know, we, I asked my mom for a piano when I was a kid. We got this little tiny spinet uh, and it was probably never tuned and we moved three or four times. And so <laughs> my relative pitch is fine, but you know, you could play anything in any key and I'll be like, okay, that's, you know, it's mm-hmm. good. It's good with me. Um, and so, yeah, I don't mind as long as there's a good performance to it. I don't, I don't mind where the, where the pitch strays a little bit. I have mm-hmm. great appreciation for those people who are lasers, you know, like Norm Lewis, what you mm. see, what you hear in person is what you get on the recording and vice versa. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. Like there are people who could just slice right in there. Um, and I don't begrudge them that. And I wouldn't say, no, no, you know, slop it up a little bit. But I also grew up on that time when like, we were we were trying to find any bootlegs we could get, and I'm not throwing shade, but like of Adam Pascal singing that hard part in Aida. And why did I tell her this? A stranger I've just met, a woman who I hardly know at all, and will forget. Anonymous and gone tomorrow. Enchantment passing through. And. And you know there are nights where he just doesn't hit it as, as cleanly as the cast album, but like that was exciting for us. That's mm-hmm. that's why it's live theater. Yeah, miss it, miss the note. That's fine. That, you know you're you're giving everything. Um, and so yeah, I think I think I'm of two minds about it. But um, as as long as the actor is engaged, as long as I'm engaged as an audience member, I'm certainly not sitting there, you know, deducting points for for cents off. You know, the sure. center of the pitch. Yeah, I think it's, but that is a good point, though, also, that since anything at any point anywhere can be recorded, there is this sort of, I think, paranoia with performers, justifiably, whether they it's conscious or not, that if I screw up, it's going to be online in the morning. And so there, there's a certain, in addition to the actual, you know, general anxiety and stress and fear that comes with being a performer, there's that little lovely chestnut, like sort of thrown in there. And obviously the higher you go on the ladder, the more real that, that fear would become because people, you know, then people would be interested in seeing, you know, the night Indina Menzel flopped or whatever, you know, just to pick a right. name out of a hat. We're talking about so many great luminaries, like people who have become iconic, right? Mm-hmm. Their, their distinctiveness. You talk about like a Patti LuPone, you know, when you're listening to sure. Patti LuPone, Bernadette oh, gosh, Peters, yes. I dare you to not know you're listening to Bernadette Peters. And so yeah. like all of these people just did something that, you know, we talk about like these Sondheim, like, um, you know, character actors and these, you know, they could sing song things as long as they're performing well. Um, and I think for me, that's, that's the winning ticket. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's still a play, you know, the music is just this like extra thing that lets you know how you're supposed to feel in the moment, you mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah. But it's, it's still a play. It's still a story. And, um, you know, because it's not opera, the lyrics, the lyrics inform. um, and I'd rather be able to hear the lyrics in a believable way, you know? Sure. I mean, we have on this show on Marguerite itself, we have Ruthie Henshaw, who is no slouch herself in that sort of ability and distinctiveness and and is a performer who who can bring herself to the role. Yeah, who else can sing through her teeth um, in such mm-hmm. a beautiful way? Like, you know, that Betsy Wolf does such a beautiful Ruthie Henshaw um, uh, impersonation. <laughs> if, ever you, if ever you get a chance to chat with her, ask her to do it. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just this like, really cool distinctive things she does and i will mm-hmm. always prefer like old saigons because i'd rather hear ruthie you know mm-hmm. um 
thing mm-hmm. now that I've seen her. Um, yeah. You know, it's it it's just amazing. You know, her is her is yeah. Nancy and Oliver. Give it to me. Her is Roxy. You know, Hart in Chicago. Like, give it to me. Like, I yeah, I love I love Ruby Angel. Taylor, this has been great. Before we wrap up, I have to ask you, what is your favorite song in Marguerite? Mm. Oh, it bounces around. I think I think China Doll. Um, mm. It's so straightforward. Um, but he, I, I got my hands on the original demos of the show in French at one point in time. Ooh. And I'm, I'm just going to really quickly, if you don't mind, I'm just going to give you a, a little t- taste of, of what the original French lyric was before Herbert Kretzmer came in. Uh-huh. Um, and <laughs> and you could I'll give you the English of it. But it's literally once upon a time, a lost child deep in the woods, secretly dreaming that she was a princess and king's daughter. She invented escapade companions, a thousand games in the watchtower of an imaginary castle under the gaze of the king, her father, lost princess living in the dungeon of her dreams alone in her cottage to forget the life of misery. And so you say, oh, yeah, that's Elaine Boublie. Like, that's yeah, yeah. Castle. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Yes. And oh, so, yes. so that Herbert Kretzmer came in and he doesn't speak French, you know. Right. He's this South African guy that came to England and, and worked and did so many French translations, um, not only Les Mis, but for French pop artists. Um, and he doesn't, he, you know, he could order dinner, he said, mm-hmm. um, so that he was working from, you know, rough translations and back translations and all this stuff just to make sure that the story was being told. And, and he saw, along with his collaborators, I don't know what that process was, but that a uh, 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 ballerina dancer in a music box might have been a better analogy yeah. for for marguerite this character that's trapped and and just going around nowhere you know around about nowhere mm-hmm. um is really amazing to me and it's it sort of gives me a glimpse into the process of how of how stories are told and how you could tell them multiple different ways mm. um and and yeah it's part of this beautiful lineage from Les Mis to this new thing, even though it wasn't popular and even though it was written again and again, um, that I love. That's really wonderful. That's a, that's a good choice. Yeah. It's a very popular song from the show. It pops up as one of the sort of the ones that people seem to, to know. Um, but that is a wildly different metaphor. That's really interesting. It really went right. Went hard (laughs) in a different direction. I like that idea too. I like, but I like that idea of him getting this like deep, dark, sort of like grim, Grimm's fairy tales metaphor, and being like, "That's lovely." How about a ballerina? Bo- like, how about something a little more delicate and a little more fragile, and also like it spins and it doesn't go anywhere, and you put it away when you don't want it anymore. How does that sound? Everybody can do that instead. And I like them have, but it also it speaks to their collaboration of of them having the sense to be like, "Yeah, great, go for yeah. it." You know, do do that. That there's a certain. There's a certain selflessness in that that I think is is wonderful in that kind of collaboration to let them just no no that's awesome just go ahead and do it you don't just have to translate my words you can make it your use mine as a springboard and and go and that's really yeah. that's really wonderful um, Taylor's been so the the Tonys are coming up as this as this airs uh, and yeah you're you're gotta get on a plane I guess and go to the ceremony uh, I'll be whatever that is whatever that ends up looking like it's very exciting. <laughs> Yeah, give me to the Tonys on time. Sure, absolutely. Uh, best of luck to you and to Ain't No Mo, obviously, and uh, all the um, nominees. We'll be watching from home with in- with with it- with a lot of interest for various different reasons. Yeah. Uh, and I hope everybody follows along uh, to see. But where else can people find out about all your great work online? 
Yeah. So my website is taylorjwilliams.com. It's going to be revamped. I'm going to take some photos from the Tonys and stuff and just sort of redo the website to focus on um, where I am right now. Um, so please, please check that out. I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm learning to be a better poster. Um, and, and if anybody is going to be at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this year, Chris Kirkpatrick Miss is a show that I'm so proud to have worked on, oh, wow. um, as a orchestrator, music producer, music director. Um, and so it's nice for me to step aside from sound design, having just done that and get back behind the piano, um, and to help tell this story, um, with an all-female or non-binary cast it's not just you know young pop star in sync male energy um mm-hmm. and and that makes it even more funny uh just sort of telling this it's a wonderful life christmas carol type tale about uh chris kirkpatrick from from in sync so wow if you're in edinburgh check it out all right that's a great note good good stuff coming up for you in the future that's really great taylor thank you so much Thank you. This has been such a blast. I can't wait to keep listening to to more shows that you put together. Um, and anytime you want to just have an offline chat about, you know, Barnum or, you know, sure. Wildcat the Musical, John, Johnny the Priest, uh, give me a call and we'll do it. Someone turns the key and the china doll stands on tiptoe. Pale and pink is she as she pirouettes to the music All that she can see As her painted head goes spinning Is a circle with no beginning Is a carousel never ending Is a roundabout to nowhere The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review the original cast on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help other listeners find the show. Go to bit.ly slash originalcaststore for original cast merchandise like t-shirts, tote bags, and more. Become a patron of the original cast at patreon.com slash originalcastpod so you can listen to our bonus podcast, The Original Cast at the Movies. On the socials, we're at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Taylor J. Williams for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn. And I can't. I have rehearsal. Escape. She can never refuse you. Sp-